Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening, where as we continue to shift our scheduling (laughs) this week, this new scheduling, it is now Wednesday devoted to theology of the body, and uh, we were anticipating to have Derek and Chris uh, with us this evening, but Chris has mono, so we pray for Chris Cyber to recover as quickly as possible, and uh, Derek was unable to make it this evening, but he will join me next week to continue our treatment of the love that satisfies, and that is the work we're in here, uh, Wednesday evenings, the love that satisfies, which again, which for all of you out there who might be joining us for the first time, is a work of reflection on Benedict XVI's great uh, encyclical, God is Love, where in the first half he took up the relationship between eros and agape, eros, that human erotic love, and agape, that divine sacrificial love. So this is what this book is about. It really is a theological uh, reflection and commentary to the first half of that encyclical. We are here in chapter 8, huh? This chapter that has us looking at the relationship between union and Eucharist. There's been, yes, some rich theological reflections, but also at the same time, very practical reflections for us to contemplate. And again, I appreciate all of, of your feedback, your questions, your observations. I've had some most invigorating dialogue as it relates to this great subject matter that is theology of the body. And it really is, I have to say, a privilege to be able to journey with you from one week to the next to better understand this uh, great topic that has us going uh, deeper into our faith each and every week. So here we are uh, in this chapter, chapter 8, Union and Eucharist. My dear friends, this is a chapter that has us highlighting the essence of Christianity. And what is the essence of Christianity? But is it not the Word made flesh, where spirit and matter are united in an embrace of love that will never end? We could say that the essence of Christianity is that God's own agape comes to us bodily. This is the great verse that comes to us from Luke twenty-two nineteen. What is that verse? This is my body, which is given for you. This is the good news. This is the transforming message. And when I say transforming message, I mean this is the news that literally in the Word made flesh transforms us. This is why, remember what we've talked about in the past, when Jesus Christ says, this is the blood of the New Testament, He, in essence, is saying the Mass is the New Testament. The New Testament, the Gospel, is literally the Mass. This is how it was understood in the first two, three hundred years of the Christian Church. It is so important for us as Christians and Catholics to better understand the language of this text so that we might not only better understand the Gospel and, and the Good News, but also our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
that he desires a profound intimacy, this deep relationship, this deep abiding relationship where he transforms us from the inside out that we might be a people disposed to serve the body of Christ. Amen. Okay, so with that, let us turn to page 133. If you have your books out there, I know some of you have been uh, very good (laughs) to to get the book and to kind of read with me and kind of reflect with me as I reflect out from these words. Again, this is page 133, excerpt 54. Uh, Again, by excerpt, what we mean to speak to is the 54th quote, okay, of Benedict XVI that Christopher West reflects with. All right, Benedict says this, faith worship, and ethos, and by ethos, what do we mean? Love of neighbor, the, the, the moral character of a person, are interwoven as a single reality which takes shape in our encounter with God's agape. Here, the usual contraposition between worship and ethics simply falls apart. Worship itself Eucharistic communion includes the reality both of being loved and loving others in turn. A Eucharist which does not pass over into the concrete practice of love is intrinsically fragmented. So, as Christopher West makes note here, if faith is the openness of the human heart to God's gift, worship is the gratitude we express to God for so great a gift— And ethos is our yearning to be the same gift to others that God is to us. So these three realities, faith, worship, and ethos, that love of neighbor, are interwoven, as Benedict XVI says, as a single reality. But this single reality takes shape only in our encounter with God's Agape. It's interesting, just as a footnote, for those of you who are interested in going much deeper into this, uh, pick up Benedict's work, The Spirit of the Liturgy, a great work that has us going deeper into uh, the liturgy and how he calls us into communion in and through the liturgy. So, that being said, as it relates to the language of encountering agape, encounter is a very important word for us. In so many ways, it distills the essence of this great call that the Church has embarked upon, the new evangelization. Why? Because as we encounter one another, one by one, soul by soul, do we draw out the greatness of God's love when we are open to God's love. And we can think of it this way. When a person encounters divine love, he meets the foundation of his very being, the reality from which and for which he is created. You know, the fallen world's repeated lessons that authentic love is not real, that love does not exist or is not possible, gives way to faith as the heart opens up to receive so great a gift, a sharing in the Trinity's own fire, a sharing in the Trinity's own mystery of eternal love generation. We could say love of God worship, right, and love of neighbor, that ethos, flow naturally and readily from the presence of that fire within the human heart. 
One cannot understand the task before he has received the gift, huh? One cannot understand the goal if they don't first understand their identity. One cannot make God known if he doesn't first know God. So what Benedict XVI tells us includes both the reality of being loved and loving others. This is the structure, my friends, of Christianity. This is what is at the heart of the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, and the two great commandments, right? The first three commandments are about love of God, worshiping God, right? And the seven subsequent commandments are about that ethos, that love of neighbor. You look at the Beatitudes, you can see how the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, lays the foundation, okay, of all of the subsequent Beatitudes, Look at the two great commandments. Everything we have talked about up to this point in many ways is highlighted by the two great commandments. Love God, then love neighbor. So for the creature, for you and I, then being loved always precedes the reality of loving others. We love because, as 1 John 4, 19 reminds us, he first loved us. Only to the degree that we know we are loved, are we able to love others? As we've already discussed, (laughs) one cannot give what he does not have. Failure in loving others stems from simply, my friends, not living in God's love for us. This is why when we fail to meet that ethos, that moral norm calling us to love, what we need is not more willpower, Rather, what we need is a deeper encounter. What we need is intimacy with divine love, a more profound and pronounced relationship with Jesus Christ. Once we've established that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we will now better understand the mission that is before us. So often today, we want to do the right thing or the good thing. But what we forget is that the right thing or the good thing might not be the thing that God wants us doing. What do I mean? Is every good a willed good? No. Wow, what do you mean, Joe? How can you not say that every good is a willed good? Well, let's think about this critically, okay? If my son comes up to me and says, Dad, I want to pull weeds. (laughs) Let me tell you, as a father, to have his nine-year-old son ask him to pull weeds that is a very good thing. But what if, what if I, his dad, has something more important for him to do at that moment? What if we need to clean the inside of our house because a bunch of people are coming over? That it is more pressing for him to clean up his bedroom at that moment. And I have to say to him, at this moment, your father (laughs) is telling you that the willed good is for you to clean up your room. We can worry about the weeds that no one will see in a week or so, right? So I'm not saying necessarily no, but what I'm telling you is not yet. What I'm asking you to do is something else. And in our prayer, in our encounters with divine love, in our encounters with God, what we will come to understand is the wisdom that is underneath God telling us, what? Not yet. And maybe, maybe pending our request, he will even say no. 
But as we've discovered on this program, behind every no is an immeasurable greater yes. So we need this encounter with divine love. And in this encounter, and only in this encounter, does the ethic, the ethos, the law, the external moral norm become a deep yearning and power from within to fulfill the law by being the same gift to others that God is to us. Instead of having to love, we want to love. This is the threshold, I think, of Christianity, that we no longer have to do something, but that we want to do it, right? That we are no longer about self-getting, but self-giving. Not what we get out of it, but what we can put into it. Very important. In God's love for us, the Father, through the Son, shares with us his own, as Christopher West puts it, love gift, which is what? The Holy Spirit. Filled with this fire, we long to return it to God in our worship and share it with others in our ethos, that love of neighbor. And I love the way Christopher West puts us here. <laughs> when we step out of that circuit of love, we short circuit. We still long for love, but seek it in the wrong places. Consequently, he says, despite all intentions to the contrary, we fail to love others rightly when we are unplugged from the source. And as he notes, <laughs> the Eucharist is the sure means for plugging ourselves into that electricity, that fire of love. If you were to go back into sacred scripture, one of the Greek words for power is uh, energy. It's the Greek word for energy, right? <laughs> this is what's going on here. We receive the power of the Holy Spirit, the fire of the Holy Spirit, and what we receive is this new energy to love as God loves. This is an extraordinary thing that is before us, a great gift. And it is in the Mass where we receive the heavenly bridegroom who impregnates us with the fire of this love. And certainly we are called to bear that fire uh, to others. Remember what the word Mass means, right? The Latin missio, to send forth. Okay. If we have opened our hearts to this fire, our mission to go in peace to love and serve the Lord that we hear at the end of every Mass becomes our heart's deepest desire, becomes our heart's deepest longing. And as Christopher West talks all throughout the book, and certainly it's what the book is called, that longing, that love is the love that satisfies. So how do we love and serve the Lord? Well, <laughs> John reminds us in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 3, when he says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Huh? Burdensome. Do we not think sometimes that the law of God is burdensome? Do we not think that the law of God, living in God sometimes, just is overwhelming? Well, they aren't. If we are ablaze with the fire of his love, they are not if we are set on fire for God. Once again, in the language of Christopher West, only when we step away from that circuit of Trinitarian love fire 
do we find it difficult and we can even say impossible to keep God's commandments? Brothers and sisters, if we find God's commandments burdensome, overwhelming, perhaps the solution is not to reject the commandments or water them down. Perhaps the solution is to step into the fire, to be set ablaze with love, to be reborn in that divine mystery of new life. What does that next verse say in that letter of John? For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So faith opens to fire and worship returns the fire to God. And ethos, that love of neighbor, shares the fire with others. Again, all three are interwoven as a single reality. And that single reality is an eternal blazing fire, which has become, as John 6.55 reminds us, real food and real drink. Amen to that. Okay, let us drop down here to the next excerpt. This is Benedict the Sixteenth. No one has ever seen God as he is, and yet God is not totally invisible to us. God has made himself visible. In Jesus, we are able to see the Father. Of course, there he's quoting John 14, 9. So the question is posed, what enables us to see the Father? We must turn once again to the inexhaustible mystery of the Incarnation. It is just that simple. This is why (laughs) the incarnation of Jesus Christ lies at the heart of our faith. Because in the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman. In Christ's human body, God's mystery becomes visible. In this way, St. John Paul II can speak to the body as a theology that we can actually discover something of God, the meaning of God within our bodies. This has been the pursuit huh, of every week to go deeper into theology of the body, to go deeper into this theology that would actually have us understanding God in the language of our body. This is powerful stuff. So in this thesis statement, if you will, of John Paul II, He wants us to see that the body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. It has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world, the mystery hidden from eternity in God, and thus to be a sign of it. Wow. We cannot see spiritual realities. By definition, Spiritual realities are invisible. But what St. John Paul II is saying here is that the human body is capable of making invisible realities visible so that we can see and touch them. We have spoken to, on a number of occasions, this phrase, the sacramentality of the body. When I am sad, I cry. I can actually touch these tears something that I can actually touch, something that I can actually feel, right? The body is communicating in inward reality, is incarnating something we don't necessarily see on the inside. And by that, I speak to the emotion of being sad. 
as it relates to the Incarnation. And for all intents and purposes, because of the Incarnation, the Apostles can proclaim that the Word of Life, again, 1 John 1, verses 1 to 2, his opening words to his first epistle, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, was made manifest and we saw it and testify to it. If we were to go to the Catechism, paragraph 704, we read that God impressed his own form on the flesh in such a way that even what was visible might bear the divine form. Well, what is the divine form? Huh? Well, the Trinity. God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God impressed this Trinitarian form right into our very flesh by creating us male and female and calling us to be fruitful and multiply. Is this not we, what we read in the opening chapters in the book of Genesis? Remember, Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image and likeness, male and female, he created them. So, in the union and fertility of the sexes, we discover a created version of the Trinity's uncreated exchange of love. Brothers and sisters, this I believe to be a most salient point that comes to us from theology. When two become one in the marital conjugal embrace and bear life to a third, it leaves footprints to the Trinity, huh? Because the Trinity, again, is Father and Son coming together and bearing life in the Holy Spirit, that which is love. Powerful, powerful stuff. Of course, we must always remember the abyss <laughs> that exists between the created and the uncreated. That this created communion, male and female, while it provides insight into the life of the Trinity, it is still only a faint glimmer, only a pale image of the uncreated communion of the Trinity. This is the language of John Paul II. This is the language of Christopher West. But all that being said, it does provide an image nonetheless. For every analogy we use, while it offers us an image that might help us better understand something, it is always going to pale in comparison to the reality that we are comparing it to. But it doesn't stop us from using analogies. Because within an analogy, we do have an image, and an image evangelizes the imagination. It evangelizes the soul, and it helps us to contemplate the deeper meaning, in this case, of the stuff of the Trinity and how we share in the life of the Trinity. Rich stuff. I mean, this is rich, rich stuff. So, as John Paul II affirmed in, as Christopher West puts it, a dramatic development of Catholic thought, Man images God, not only through his own humanity, but also through the communion of persons which man and woman form right from the beginning. He even goes on to say that it constitutes perhaps the deepest theological aspect of everything one can say about man. Why? Well, remember what we've talked about before in the past— that when two become one, they experience this profound joy. And let us remember 
that the grace we receive to share in God's very life is this joy. The word joy has the same root as grace, because as joy is one of those great spiritual fruits of a life in Christ, it becomes one of the more profound, if not the most profound, spiritual experiences of sharing in God's very life. And so the two becoming one is very important to understand this. Here, my friends, I think we can rekindle some of that uh, subject matter that we discussed during Christmas when we were talking about the adoration of the Magi. Here we have these three wise men um, encounter the infant king. And what is that verse? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You know, the Greek typically is very economical, okay? One, two, maybe three syllables. And that particular Greek phrase, what we have is 12, 13 syllables. It is a phrase that communicates this, this profound spiritual encounter from which bursts forth this robust enthusiasm, this joy, this uncontainable fire, okay? So joy and grace belong together, most notably within the context of encountering the greatness of God's love. So since Christ is the perfect image of God in the world, we are more accurately images of the image. So it is. We live in Jesus that we might better see the Father and in turn witness to the greatness of the Father's love. So I'm looking up at the clock and I see that we are almost out of time. I just want to close with one last thought. You know, I have been in a number of conversations recently about the way we think about who we are and what we do, essentially placing the doing before the being. Uh, when we do that, <laughs> what we are then doing is placing the second great commandment before the first great commandment, right? Let us never forget that we are not human doings, but human beings, and who we are forms and informs what we do, okay? If we reverse this, ultimately, we will be left clutching at empty space, tight-gripping everything that we do. It is only when we are in relationship with God that we can alleviate that tension of our work and better understand the purpose of our work. This is why the two great commandments and everything that we have talked about tonight is at the center of our faith. Faith, worship, and ethos, faith, worship, and this love of neighbor in God for other has everything to do with giving glory to God in all that we do because who we are gives purpose and meaning to what we do. In other words, when our identity is first about our relationship with God and second what we do, we are well on our way to being the best version of who God is calling us to be. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. All glory be 
to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.